My brother and I, I won't tell you which one this time if I can help it, used to play rugby in the backyard. Standard rugby rules, two halves of the grass field, you have to get to the other side, you have four tackles. Uh, one time in particular, my brother pulled a cool sidestep spin kind of move and got past me and was on his way to go score a try. Being the competitive person I am, I couldn't let that happen, so I pulled out my best move, I dove onto him and shoved him into the garden with all my might, and his body fell onto a plant and cracked it clean in half. So we're standing there with this dead plant in our hand, thinking, what are we going to do? And then I had the great idea, why don't we just shove it in the ground, and maybe it'll like graft into the soil. I might just turn this down, it's a bit loud. Um, well, it'll graft into the soil. So we didn't tell mum. A couple of weeks later, mum's looking at the garden. It's like green hedge, green, 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 dead brown, green, green, green. So she goes over and investigates and pulls out what is effectively a piece of fairy floss, this dead branch. So she gets my brother and I together and says, what is this about? At this point, I'm racked with guilt about trying to cover it up in the first place. And I've also got these, these Christian messages in my head of like good people take ownership of stuff. So I remember standing there and I went, I'll take this one. I stepped forward and I said, it was my fault. It was Lockie's body, but it was my fault. <laughs> I'll take the punishment. Don't blame him. It's my fault. And mum looked at me and was like, no, it really is your fault. You pushed him. It's not his fault at all. So I had to, I had to pay for the new plant. The reason I say this is that making somebody else's problem my problem was the just thing to do. Making somebody else's problem my problem. Let me pray. Father, I trust you have things you want to say to us tonight, and I just want to get out of the way and let you do that. Would you make manifest your spirit in me and enlighten us all as we open your word tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. We are in week number seven of our Deuteronomy series. Uh, seven, of course, is perfection, completion, culmination, and yet this is not going to be that sermon. We have a couple more weeks, um, which is great. I'm loving Deuteronomy. I don't know about you guys, but at this stage, we should be masters at reading Deuteronomy. But I'll give you another 30,000-foot view nonetheless. So the book of Deuteronomy finds the people of Israel on the cusp of the promised land. Forty years ago, they were brought out of slavery in Egypt, and now after 40 years of wandering in a circle in the wilderness, they're finally on the cusp of this long-promised land. And their leader, Moses, stands before them, and he gives them his fi famous final last words. How do you, whatever. His last words... He stands before the people and gives them three speeches or sermons. Tonight's sermon takes the second half of the second sermon. Three sermons, last part of the second sermon. Deuteronomy is about Moses telling the people what God gives him to tell them, that they are to structure and organize their society in this way. They're about to enter the new land this is the kind of people they will need to be. I have a rhythm 
Every time I go out, I go, keys, wallet, phone, keys, wallet, phone, keys, wallet, phone, lock the door, keys, wallet, phone. I kind of feel like this is Moses' keys, wallet, phone to the people of Israel. It's like, okay, you're about to enter the promised land. This is what you need to know. Keys, wallet, phone. Evan read out for us in an interesting translation. Deuteronomy 24. I'm going to give it to us in NIV. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. What's the central theme here? I think it's justice. This is the kind of society that God is calling them to be. Verse 17 said, Do not deprive the fatherless or the foreigner of justice. And then Moses gives four laws that establish justice, leaving some for the poor and the vulnerable. The fabric that is to be woven into Israelite society is justice. That's what God's saying. So if you've been reading, if you have read the book of Deuteronomy with us in the 3420 program, you might remember that that middle section of Deuteronomy is dense, dense commands and regulations, which is just justice. It's establishing a standard of living in the way that the Israelites are to relate to one another. Has this for justice. Deuteronomy 21. If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. Deuteronomy 24.7, if someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the the kidnapper must die. Deuteronomy 19.21, show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That is pretty full on. I hope most of us hear that and go, is that justice? Surely that rubs us the wrong way. But the mistake we make is comparing these laws with modern laws. Actually, when you compare the biblical Deuteronomic law to contemporary equivalents, the Bible is radically just. Check this out. This is from one of the most famous ancient law codes, the Code of Hammurabi, king of the Babylonians. If you bring an accusation of a crime before the elders and you can't prove it, you shall be put to death. If you break a hole into a house to steal, you shall be put to death. If you commit robbery and a court, you shall be put to death. If a woman enters a tavern to drink, she shall be burned to death. 
If a son strikes his father, his hand shall be chopped off. If a slave hits a free man, his ear shall be chopped off. If a physician performs surgery on a patient and the patient dies, this doctor has his hands chopped off. If a builder builds a house for someone and the house is not well made and it falls in and kills the owner of the house, the builder loses his life. One more, if a slave says to his master, you are not my master, the master shall cut off his ear. This is the standard of law in the nations all around Israel. It's violent. It's law, but it's violent. And so into this world, God gives the Deuteronomic law, and it is radically just. Biblical justice is radical. If someone kills someone in my household, I cannot wipe out their entire family because that's what would happen. Biblical justice comes in and says the punishment must fit the crime, life for life. It is radical for its time. I'm not a lawyer, but... Dangerous way to start a sentence. I'm not a lawyer, but I understand there are... I understand two of the types of justice, retributive justice and restorative justice. Retributive justice is those who do bad getting what they deserve, as they understand it. If you steal a loaf of bread, you should be fined. Restorative justice is about rigging, re-rigging the fabric of society to better those who are oppressed and suffering under injustice. It's reaching down to those who are suffering under injustice and improving their situation. That's restorative justice, not retributive justice. What I find interesting about the way the Bible talks about justice is nine times out of ten, it refers to restorative justice, to lifting up the lowly and the vulnerable. That means 10% of the time, The Bible talks about bad people getting what they deserve when it talks about justice. But the vast majority is about lifting up the vulnerable and protecting them and caring for them. Nine times out of ten. I love that. That's the kind of model of justice which I want to see. When the Bible talks about justice, it tends to refer to four groups of people. Nicholas Volterstoff, Anita's giving me the thumbs up. Nicholas, I won't say it again. He coined this term, the quartet of the vulnerable. Quartet meaning four. The quartet of the vulnerable. These are the Bible's top four most vulnerable people. Widows, orphans, refugees, and the poor. Widows, orphans, refugees, and the poor. The quartet of the vulnerable. These are the most vulnerable groups in the ancient world. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9 is one of many verses which refers to this quartet of the vulnerable. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the refugee or the poor. God cares. He cares about the plight of these vulnerable ones. The widow, the orphan, the refugee, and the poor. The reason why they are the most vulnerable is they can't help themselves. 
They've lost everything. They are voiceless, powerless, helpless. They can't get out of the situation that they find themselves in. And yet God cares so much about them that he gives the law to Moses, to the, through Moses to the people of Israel, that they would weave into the fabric of who they are as a society, restorative justice that would lift up the vulnerable and the oppressed, that would raise our voice for those who don't have a voice. That's what biblical justice means. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Why? What's the motivation for biblical justice? Verse 18 tells us, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. The motivation for biblical restorative justice that lifts up the vulnerable and the oppressed is what God has done for us in the past. At this point in the story, Israel are 40 years out from their slavery in Egypt. It's still very much in their corporate memory. They remember what it was like to be the vulnerable ones, bound in slavery in Egypt, helpless, voiceless, unable to make their situation better. But God, in his justice, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the scripture says, brought them out of Egypt. And so now he calls them, act the same way to others. God was just to you, so you extend justice to others. I don't know if you know this about me, but I was homeschooled for most of my education. I was also a skateboarder for, well, since I was a teenager. And I was at the skate park the other day over lunch, and it was just me and one other family. There was a mother and four kids. The oldest was probably year 11, and the youngest was kindergarten. And they're all skating or scooting around, and as is the custom in skate park culture, you say, hey, what's up? Like, oh, hey, doing? Like, oh, sick trick, bro, like, high five, whatever. Skate culture. There was this one kid, one of the four kids, I assume the mid, one of the middle kids, was probably 14, long blonde hair, skating around. And as I was watching him, not creepily, just like observing, I was like, not creepily, I was like, man, he just reminds me of myself. He, he, he kind of looked like me when I was 14. And as I was like, observing, I was like, you know what? I have a hunch. I bet you this family are homeschoolers. I think it takes one to know one. I don't know what it was about them. I couldn't put my finger on any single thing that would alert someone to the fact that, they, that I thought they were homeschooled. But I had this hunch. I knew it. I knew that they were homeschooled. So at one point I was, you know, resting against the metal fence, as I do, and one of them came up, the kid who I thought looked like me, the 14-year-old, and I was like, so you um, got the day of school? And he's like, no, I'm homeschooled. And I went, yes! So I gave him a big high five. I was like, no way, dude, I was homeschooled. Like, I never meet other homeschoolers. And then we were just chatting for two minutes about how cool it is that when you're homeschool, you can get all your work done in the morning and then go to the skate park for lunch. So I'm just bonding with this 14-year-old kid over homeschooling and skating. And then he skates off and I skate off and whatever happens. And then I kind of had this thought as he was skating away. I was like, 
I feel like I just spoke to myself when I was 14. It was a weird feeling. Here's a kid, 14 years old, long blonde hair, middle child of four, homeschooled, skating, quiet and introverted, and also very, very cool. <laughs> I was looking at myself. It was a weird feeling. <laughs> wow, why are you laughing? <laughs>、um, it was such a weird feeling of. Feeling like I was looking at myself in a time machine. And I kind of had a sense of what this kid was going through in life in a very surface level way because I felt like I was him and I saw myself in him. And so God is calling Israel to do the same thing. He's saying, You know what it's like to be in slavery, to be helpless and voiceless. You know what it's like, so now you need to do the same. For other people to administer true justice. They were the vulnerable ones, and so now they need to administer justice, restorative justice, for the vulnerable ones. Psalm 146, verse 7 says, God upholds the cause of the oppressed. The word caused,、uh, cause is the Hebrew word that means justice. God upholds the justice of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Israel were only called to be just because God is just. Justice is who God is. Justice is rooted in the character of God. And out of that place, he calls Israel to be just. Once they enter the promised land, he calls them, establish a society under God where justice is woven into everything you do, where the vulnerable, the widows, the orphan, the refugee, and the poor are lifted up, where they are given a voice. And given power because God cares about justice. It's who He is, and it's not optional. It's foundational to the kind of people that Israel were called to be. In fact, justice is required. Micah 6 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. That's what Israel were called to do. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And I believe it's the calling God has for us individually, and as a church, and as the church, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly, that we would weave justice into everything we do. That we would seek out the vulnerable and give them a voice, raise our voice for them and raise them up. In many ways, this message is a pat on the back and not a slap on the hand for us at Northern Life, because coming out of May Mission Month, we just raised, I don't know if someone said it tonight, we raised $36,000 of our $25,000 budget. So praise God for that. Clearly, He has moved in our hearts, and we are a church that cares. For the plight of the vulnerable, as we should. Justice is required of us. So let's be just.
I've heard that sermon before. The one I just gave, I've heard it before. In different ways, different people, different places. But that idea, God is just, he was just to you, go be just. I've heard it before. And I want to preempt your response to what I've just said. Because I know what my response has been and what it would be if I was sitting in the front row. My response, and you might be something like me, would be, yeah, justice. Also, I'm not personally responsible for inflicting injustice on others. I don't have power or authority to significantly alleviate the injustice on others. But I'll be just. Like, thanks for the sermon, dude, bro, sis, whatever. Thanks for the sermon. That's what I'd be saying in the front row. And that might be what you're saying. In my heart, that's my response to the words that are coming out of my mouth. Because I've said, and I'm for real, this is not a thing to be proud of, but I'm just saying. I've thought before, look at those people. They find it so easy to be passionate about justice. They're the kinds of people who are like big, bleeding hearts, empathetic and warm and compassionate, who everything they touch, they just love. Praise God for those people, but that's not me. And I've said that to myself in my, in my heart. I've said, praise God for the justice people, but justice isn't my thing. I find it hard to get passionate about justice. And as soon as I become passionate, the fire grows cold straight away. Justice isn't my thing, but this is what I need to say to myself, and I'm saying to you, insofar as you are like me in that way. You don't understand justice if you say it's not your thing. I'm, I'm saying that to myself. I don't understand justice if I say it's not my thing. Because true, biblical, restorative justice is not optional. You cannot get off the hook. And this is why. This is why you must administer justice. And you cannot say it's not your thing. Jesus said, the second greatest commandment behind love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is love your neighbor as yourself. Simple, but think about that. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means, I put it to you, that we make their problem my problem. Their plight is my plight, the most vulnerable we make their problem my problem. That's what it is to love your neighbor as yourself. This might not be a new idea for you. Maybe you are one of the passionate justice ones. Again, more power to you. But for me, this kind of rocked me during the week. Making their problem my problem is what justice is. And it is not optional. Do you call yourself a Christian? A believer? Are you obedient to Jesus? He says the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. That means making their problem my problem. So I cannot ignore them because their hunger is my hunger. Their injustice is my injustice. And if I care for myself and I love myself like we all do, rightly so, to a point, it means we have to give that up and love them the way we love ourselves. To make the most vulnerable's problem, my problem.
motivated by what God has done for me in saving me from my sin, saving you from our sin. Justice is your problem. Justice is my problem. Justice is our thing. You don't get to say, justice isn't my thing. This is my thing. Worship, teaching, whatever is my thing. Justice, I'm going to leave that over there. You do not get to say that. Justice is a fundamental command to humanity that God gives us, to his believers, to his children. Let's go back to Micah 6.8 and reinterpret it in this light. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Number one, to act justly. If we're defining justice, restorative justice that lifts up the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, and the poor, if we are to act justly, making their problem my problem, that requires something starting with H, rhyming with humility. Humility. Humility is valuing the needs of somebody else above my own, putting them above me. That's justice. I can't love you, you most vulnerable person, unless I, in humility, value your needs above my own, to love you as I love myself. And in the second hand, how could we love others and administer justice without mercy? to see through any kind of thing that this person has done to deserve to be put in this situation that they're in, even though injustice is frequent, frequently undeserved. God was merciful to us. So as we go on the mission of justice, it requires mercy. So the requirement, I'm trying to reframe Micah 6.8, this well-known verse. What does he require? Act justly. Make their problem my problem. And you, to do that, you need to walk humbly and to love mercy, to act justly. To act justly. If you get one thing out of this message, let it be this. Biblical justice means making the most vulnerable person's problem, my problem. You cannot get off the hook. I cannot get off the hook. I can't ever say again in response to a sermon like this, be just. I can't say justice isn't my thing. Because you must make their problem your problem. Let me say again or clarify for real, I feel like I'm sitting in the front row hearing this and being convicted because this is what's happened during the week. I've just been cut to the core of my sinful response that God has been so just to me and yet I could say, oh, justice isn't my thing. So I come in no, in no way, um, I don't come in judgment or condemnation that I don't first heap on myself. I have failed. You have failed to administer justice. The people of Israel, spoiler alert, failed to administer justice in the promised land. And so my response and our response must be, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
I'm sorry for the times when I haven't lifted up justice. It's our calling. In a world of injustice, powerlessness, where the most vulnerable are mistreated, we are called to enter that world and bring justice to them, to fight for the widow, the orphan, the refugee, and the poor, or whoever they look like today, whoever are the ones who don't have a voice and who can't help themselves. And in the midst of our futile efforts, in the midst of our broken world, Jesus came bringing true justice. He saw the most vulnerable, and he did something about it. He cleansed the leper. He touched the untouchable. He loved the unlovely. He forgave the unforgivable. He honoured the shamed, welcomed the outcast, dignified the lowly, empowered the powerless. More than that, Jesus died for the undeserving, you and me, that we would not receive what we justly deserve, death for our sin. He took that on himself, that we would get what he deserves, life, relationship with the Father. And out of that, Jesus says, those who have been forgiven should forgive. Those who have been shown justice and who have been lifted up from the ashes and the death of sin should do the same for others by God's grace. Justice is not optional. Biblical justice means making the most vulnerable's problem my problem. So where do we go from here? Short answer is I don't know. I'm trying to work it out. I'm done with listening to these kinds of sermons and going, yeah, justice, and then leaving and forgetting about it. So I'm going to commit to a process, not an outcome. I've been thinking about this kind of stuff this idea for a while. Commit to a process, not an outcome. Because if, you, if we leave this place and go, we will be just, we're going to change the world in justice, you fall short and you lose motivation. But you commit to a process, you say, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to renew my mind in Scripture. I'm going to pray, Lord, would you give me eyes to see the vulnerable the way you see them? That they are loved, made in the image of God and intrinsically valuable. Would you move my heart to compassion and justice the way you had justice on me? That I could, by your spirit, by, um, with the things you've given me in my hand to give to them, money, finances, whatever it is, to be a people who give to the oppressed and raise them up and raise our voice for them. Commit to the process, not the outcome. I just put that before you. That's what I'm going to try. And I do emphasize the word try. If you want something a bit pointier, what is one thing you are going to do this week to bring justice to this world? We leave this place in half an hour. We go scatter to our own lives. I pray, and I will pray in a moment, that, he, that God opens our eyes to see those injustices that we have forgotten about and that we overlook in our everyday life. And I want to challenge you, as I challenge myself, one thing, what is one thing you will do this week 
to see the injustice inflicted on a vulnerable person and to step in for them. Biblical justice means making their problem my problem. Would you like to stand as we pray and close? Lord Jesus, for every time where we have failed to provide true justice, we are sorry. We ask you to forgive us, please. You gave us the perfect example of justice and righteousness. You loved us when we were so undeserving. So I pray right now, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Open the eyes of our heart that we may see each other see every person that we encounter in our week the way you see them. Transform our vision, please, Lord, that we would have soft hearts that are obedient to your prompting and to your calling, that we would administer justice for the vulnerable to make their problem our problem. Lord, help us to be a church that makes the most vulnerable's problem our problem. We thank you for the opportunities you will give us to be obedient to you in this manner and ask you to open our eyes. Please, Lord. Amen.